Church Bible, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 20, and page 20 in the Church Bible. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain uh, have been destroyed uh, by God and His judgment because of their great sin against Him. And it would seem that Abraham, uh, as a result of that, uh, believes it's not safe for him to stay in that immediate community. He's afraid that the judgment of God uh, may come upon uh, where he's residing and so he moves here in chapter 20 again. So let's read about his move further south uh, towards uh, Egypt, but still in the wider land uh, of uh, Canaan or Palestine. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kaddish and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abram said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, Behold, you are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he had told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I sinned uh, against you that you have brought such sin or guilt upon me in my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. The Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned or restored his wife to him. And Abimelech said, 
My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Amen. Sometimes an exasperated parent will say to their child, How often do you have to be asked to put your dirty washing in the laundry basket? Or how often do you have to be asked not to provoke your brother or sister? I wonder if the Lord Jesus ever feels like saying that to you or to me, his children. How often do do you have to be asked not to be afraid and not to lie, not to lose your temper? How often do you have to be asked to seek first the kingdom of God? We are children of God. Through that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet we can be slow to learn from our sins and our faults of the past. We can be slow to let them go. To give them up. And we fall into the same temptation and sins again and again. In our studies in the life of Abraham... We have reached chapter 20, where Abraham, a man who is living by faith in Jesus Christ, the Saviour who will come. Here Abraham, the friend of God, succumbs to the same sin a second time. And it's only the second recorded time. The text suggests that this is a sin that he's committed many, many times. That of saying that Sarah is his sister and not his wife. And that of expecting her to say to others, Abraham is my brother. We read in verse 1, Abraham moved on from there. That's from Mamre, the place that overlooked the scene of destruction in the Jordan plain. He moves from there into the region of the Negev, down south towards Egypt. Uh, more desert air. And for a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abram said, uh, of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Genesis chapter 20, to a huge extent, is a mirror image of Abram's experience in Egypt that we looked at in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. So what should we do with this chapter, chapter 20? Well, some would suggest that we just pass over it. We've learned this lesson before. We've seen Abram in this situation before. And really, it would get us through the series at least one sermon quicker uh, if we passed over it. 
But that hardly is a fitting response if we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to record this sin of Abraham now when he's a hundred years old as the Holy Spirit recorded it when he was a man of 75 years old. The first time it happened and now I believe there's every evidence to suggest that from this point on Abraham gets on top of this sin. So what's this chapter about? Well, this chapter is the Old Testament teaching us about sin. That the believer can repeat sin again and again and risk the promised blessing of God on his life or her life. And so this morning we're going to look at this chapter by asking a question that the Apostle Paul asks In Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue in sin? That's the issue for Abraham. And that's an issue for you and me as Christians today. And sadly, it's a question that many Christians, sorry, I shouldn't say many Christians, some Christians don't even consider today. Let's notice this morning four things, actually, as we work our way through this chapter. And the headings are on the rear side of your order of service. First of all, we want to think about remaining sin. And we're looking here at verses 1 and 2 and verse 13. And this, we're looking now at Abraham and we're looking at Sarah and seeing how there's this sin that remains with them. When Abraham and Sarah first used this scheme or this ruse uh, in Genesis chapter 12 to hide their real relationship. What did we conclude about his action then? Well, we said he was lying. Uh, They were lying. They used something that was true in itself, that they were related to each other by blood to hide a more significant truth that they are husband and wife. Now at that stage, Abram was 75 years of age. And we, reflecting upon that, recognize that he's just beginning on the journey of faith. We might want to say he's a new believer. And he's finding his feet, spiritually. He's been rescued and saved from a false religion. And he's on a journey and he's in a pagan place, a strange land and he's vulnerable and he's without years of Christian teaching and experience to enable him to avoid sin. And we might say, Genesis chapter 12, it's understandable how this man then fell into that sin. And we would have sympathy for him. But, of course, that cannot and did not and does not justify or excuse his line then, whether he was a new Christian or whether he is a mature Christian. But certainly now, by Genesis chapter 20, Abraham has been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ for 25 years. 
He's been looking to the city whose builder and founder is God. And Christ has appeared to him in person on at least three occasions. Christ has made gracious and abundant promises to him. Christ has protected him over the past 25 years. Christ has delivered him out of a war. And there's many other things that Christ has done for him. But here now, 25 years after his arrival in the land of Canaan, the place of blessing, he's still falling into a sin from the days of his earliest Christian experience. Look at what he says to Abimelech. The verse that we're thinking about the children. When God made me wander from my father's household, 75 years of age, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. What a strange way to show love. By disobeying God. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Not just in one place, but everywhere we go. Where we perceive to be in danger or in a minority, say of me, he is my brother. This practice on the part of Abraham, it's deliberate, it's conscious, it's calculated, it's ongoing. It's what earlier generations of Christians in our own land called remaining sin. You and I are saved through Christ. And our sins are forgiven. Past, present and future. We are new creatures. New creation. All things have passed away. But there is this war as Paul talks about. That goes on inside us between the old nature. The sin that remains. And how stubborn that remaining sin can be. Paul had to confront the church in Rome about it. Sin they continued to indulge in. And they thought it's alright. Because God is the God of grace and Jesus Christ. And Paul says no it's not alright. And here in Genesis God is saying to Abraham. No Abraham it's not alright to continue to do this year after year for 25 years. Now Abraham's not a compulsive liar. He doesn't lie every time he opens his mouth. But he continues to live a lie in this crucial area of his life. His relationship with Sarah. Denying what it actually is. Husband and wife. Pretending that it's only that of blood, brother and sister. It's only that of kinship and friendship. And here for a second time in Genesis chapter 20. A local king is attracted by Sarah's beauty. And because of Abram's lie, this king takes Sarah to be his wife. He believes it's legitimate and, and there's nothing wrong with doing so. He had no grounds for thinking otherwise. Verse 2. Abram said, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. The king sent and the king took her. 
And by this, Abraham risks jeopardizing the promise of Christ and the purpose of Christ for his life. Remember the crucial stage at which things now are at. Genesis 18 verse 10. The promised son is to be conceived in the next year. The promised son is to be conceived in this very period. And so Abraham, guilty of remaining sin, runs the risk of destroying and losing the purpose and promise of God for his life. I hope you know enough of God's word and of his saving grace this morning to scream, Abraham, Abraham, how can you be so foolish? How can you be so blind? How can you be so wicked as to do this? Not just once, but again and again and again. And now in this period, when the promised son Isaac is to be conceived in your wife. But before we condemn Abraham for his inconsistent and shallow and cowardly compromise and fall into sin, let us look into our own hearts and let us examine ourselves and let us ask, how long am I a Christian? Is there a sin that I cling to? What again our forefathers called a darling sin. A sin that we didn't want to give up. That I keep on committing. A sin that I've not put to death. Some sin perhaps from the time before I was converted. A sin of speech that cuts people off. The sin of selfishness that keeps me, though I now in Christ, I keep thinking of myself before others. A way of life, perhaps dishonesty, or idleness, or gossip, or lustful thoughts, or sexual immorality. Remaining sin. What is your remaining sin? That you fall back into when fear, when something causes fear in your life. Or when something creates uncertainty in your circumstances. You revert back to this old Remaining sin. By remaining sin and allowing it to continue with us for a year, two years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, we run the risk of jeopardizing the purpose of God for our lives. Let's notice then, secondly, restraining sin. We're looking now at verses 3 to 7. 
restraining sin. And we're thinking now of God restraining sin in Abimelech, the unbeliever. And the key words here are verse 3, but God. But God. If the grace of God in Abraham's life or our lives depended on us, we would never know it. We'd never make it to heaven. If it had been up to us to choose Christ, you would never have chosen him. If it were up to you or me to change for Christ, we would never change. Not a single ounce of our being. If the fulfilment of God's promise of a son to Abraham rests with Abraham, it will never happen. But salvation is not of us. And sanctification is not of us. It is of the Lord. And the purposes of God don't stand or fall with you or me. Though we are responsible for every twist and turn that we take and we can cause great damage to ourselves. Yet the purpose of God do not stand or fall with us. He keeps us. We do not keep ourselves. And in this chapter, when Abraham succumbs to remaining sin, God wonderfully intervenes to keep his servant from making an utter shipwreck of his Christian experience. Verse 1, Abraham moved. Verse 1, Abraham said. Verse 1, Abimelech sent. Verse 1, Abimelech took. Verse 3, but God. But God. Thank God for the but God in all of your lives. And in my life. We would not be in church this morning if it were not but God. We would not be saved this morning if it were not but God. Abraham would never have got Sam, his wife, back if it were not but God. This woman would have been imprisoned in an adulterous relationship for the rest of her life if it were not for but God. Isaac would never have been born if it had not been for but God. Verse 3. Came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, and the word behold should be in there. It means sit up, take notice. You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Verse 4. We're told now Abimelech had not gone near her. Verse 6, God says, So I've kept you from sinning against Abraham? No. Against Sarah? No. Against me. That is why I did not let you 
touch her. Now restore the man's wife. The Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of salvation, restraining sin that this man could do to this woman of God who's been betrayed by her husband firstly and then to some degree by her own words also, her own lie. So how does God put the brakes on the situation? How does he restrain the sin of Abraham? And the sin that Abimelech is about to commit. Well, it's interesting that the Lord deals with Abimelech, and we'll come back to this, and not Abram, we'll come back to it in a moment. But notice, I want you to notice in verse 3, how the Lord confronts this unbelieving man with his wrong. And he reveals to him, here's revelation coming to this man from God. Here's scripture coming to this man from God in a dream. Making him aware that of what Abram hasn't told him, but should have told him, that she is Abram's wife. And then look at uh, further down, verse 6. And it's uh, one of these mysteries how God allowed Sarah to be taken into Abimelech's house. But then he protects her whilst there from the lusts of Abimelech. Verse 6, I have kept you. And then there's an emphasis. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. And if you jump through to verses 17 and 18, it seems that uh, to... um, protect Sarah from this man, from this lustful king, and from a sinning Abraham, the Lord strikes the king himself, his wife, and all the other women in the house that he's taken with some kind of illness in their sexual activity. So here's the king of Gerar. He sends for Sarah, and she is brought to him, And he has every intention of becoming one flesh with her. But God, somehow through something, and that does to the bodies of this man, and not just of him, of his whole household, means that he's not any desire or else no ability to function sexually. There's the Lord preventing. But then look at verse 7. Where the Lord commands. So he reveals to Abimelech. He prevents Abimelech. And then he commands or requires Abimelech. Restore the man's wife. It's a command. It's an imperative. And then look at how the Lord warns Abimelech. If you don't. Verse 7. You shall certainly die. You and Yours. It's a fulfillment of what we were singing earlier in Psalm 105. 
What a marvellous, gracious, almighty, sovereign, patient, loving Saviour we have in Christ. One who restrains sin. In the life of Abimelech the unbeliever. For the well-being of Sarah the believer. Who's been betrayed by her cardly believing husband. What about you, a believer? Can you look back at situations and say there, at that moment, in that place, the Lord restrained that person from sinning against me, protected me. The Lord did it here, in this situation, by revealing and preventing and requiring or commanding and warning. He restrains sin. What an encouragement. What a comfort to believers that the Lord restrains the sin of others for our benefit and in order to achieve his purpose in us and for us. He did it with Joseph. Later in Genesis. When his brothers were going to kill him. He caused them to be rescued and sold into Egypt. Where he'd later become prime minister. Did it at the beginning of Exodus. He does it again and again. Does it with Esther. Right throughout the scriptures. What an encouragement. That the Lord restrains sin. We need to hold on to that in our day and generation. When the, the Christian church and the Christian faith is under attack. Another Christian doctor this past week called before a disciplinary tribunal because he spoke to someone who was on the verge of suicide about their need of salvation. Deemed to have crossed the line between professional his professional role and his personal faith. The Lord restrains. We've got to pray that the Lord will restrain our nation. Restrain judges. Restrain those uh, who seek to do harm against his church and his people. It's an encouragement. But also restraining sin on the part of the Lord. It's a mercy. It's a mercy. It's a mercy when you look at it from the point of view of Abraham and Sarah. Believing Abraham's sin leads to Sarah being taken by Abimelech. And in his mercy and in his grace, the Lord restrains Abimelech. Even though Abraham is the one that has been in the wrong. And so there's a mercy here. And if God were not for God's restraining grace, where would we be? As Christians, where would we be as churches? Where would we be as a nation? But before I leave this, I want to say there's a warning here. Restraining grace, there's a warning here. The fact that the Lord restrains Abraham's sin uh, here 
and prevents Abimelech doing what he intends to do against Sarah the believer, that does not mean that you or I can be careless or reckless in our choices or decisions. We can't say it doesn't matter what I choose or what I do. The Lord will right my wrong actions. Abraham actually puts the Lord his God to the test here. Remember Christ said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Abraham here very clearly has God's commandment. He knows that you shall not bear false witness. But he hasn't just a bare commandment. He's God's promise. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son. And so Abraham ought to have been restrained from the course of action that he pursued. Both by the commandment of God, you shall not lie. The promise of God, your wife Sarah shall bear a son. And you and I, the commandments of God, the word of God, the promises of the word, they are to restrain our sin. To keep us from doing the kind of thing that Abram did. Let's notice then thirdly, reproving sin. Reproving sin. And we're looking now at verse 9. Uh, verse 8 to 13 and the key verse in this section is verse 9. Things that ought not to be done, you have done, Abraham. To me, Abimelech. Abimelech's response is significant and noteworthy. And we'll, we've got to develop this in the next two points. At this point, the next point. Early in the morning, he informs his closest advisors of his dream. And he consults with them, verse 8. And in doing so, Abimelech spreads the knowledge of the one true and living God. He has to tell them what the Lord has revealed to him. What the Lord has commanded him. What the Lord has forbidden to him. Verse 8. And look at what happens. They were very much afraid. How wrong Abram was. There's no fear of God in this place. And God speaks to one man in a dream. And the whole king's household is in terror of this God. You see he only thought to himself Abram. He wasn't looking from the angle of faith. And if we simply look at situations in our lives from our own perspective, we'll say there's no fear of God in our nation. There's no fear of God among your neighbours or some of those people that you work with. But are we not to look at it from the angle of faith and say the Lord God is able to put a fear in them when I take a stand for Christ, when I speak for Christ, in the same way as a fear came into this man when the Lord spoke directly and sovereignly to him. Will that same fear not come in if you and I speak to others? Will the Lord not give it in honour of his word? And so, what might we expect him to like to do? Well, earlier, when it had come when he wanted to have Sarah. He sent for her. In other words, somebody else. 
went and got her. Somebody else brought her to the palace. And we might have expected him to send Abraham's wife back to Abraham's tent from the palace by means of those same servants. Get this woman out of here as quickly as possible. But he doesn't. That's not what Abimelech does. Look at verse 9. He called Abraham in. And that's the same word as we have in verse 8 where it says he summoned his officials. He now summons Abraham. If you were one of Abimelech's officials, you didn't say, well, your majesty, I'll come later. Or your majesty, I'm too busy today. Or I'm too tired today to think about coming to you. And Abraham has no choice but to appear now before King Abimelech. It's the summons of a judge, of someone at power and authority. And look at what he says in verse 9. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? What have I, Abimelech, done that you've brought this on me and my kingdom? A great sin. The, the NIV is weak here in its translation because the word sin is what uh, is in the original. It's not wronged and it's not guilt. It's the word you have sinned. How have I sinned against you? And you brought a great sin on my kingdom. What was your reason? And how Abraham, the friend of God, must have smarted. Put yourself in the situation. How those words must have stung into the depths of his heart. I'm a believer. And there's a non-believing man. How he must have blushed before the king of an ungodly nation. You see, Abimelech reproves Abraham for his great sin against him and his kingdom. And this sin that Abraham's committed, it risks the king's life. Go back to verse 3. The Lord said, Behold, Abraham, sit, or Abimelech, sit up, take note, you're as good as dead. One wrong move, Abimelech. One wrong response, Abimelech. And you're laid out flat. And look at verse 3. Uh, Abraham has risked the whole well-being of the nation. Where, because Abimelech says, Sovereign Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? How Abraham must have smarted as he stood there before the king. Because the king is now reproving Abraham and he is God's servant to reprove Abraham for his sin. We must never think that sin is a trivial thing. Or it doesn't matter. Or it won't have consequences. Look at the awful consequences for this man's household. This king for his nation. This king is but a breath away from hell. And his whole nation could come under judgment. His household is already under judgment. We never sin to ourselves. We never sin to ourselves. Our sin is first against God. As Abimelech was told, why have you sinned against me? 
And our sin always impacts others. Abraham's sin impacts Abimelech and his household. And it can have eternal consequences for others. And so Abraham is confronted with a sin in all its potential ramifications. And his attempts to explain it and justify it in verse 11 reveal, as I think it was Ben said, his lack of trust in the Lord. And you see, our attempt of justifications at our sin. What do they do? They simply reveal our lack of trust in the Lord. Abimelech is God's instrument then to reprove Abraham. Do you find it easy to accept reproof and correction? I don't. I don't imagine that you do. But God does reprove us. And it comes in different ways. Boys and girls. Boys and girls. God reproves you, reproves you when your mum and dad call you to account for sin. It's not just your mum and dad. It's God saying to you, do not live in this way. You don't like it. It's for your good. Fellow believers, the Lord reproves us through his word. He reproves us through another believer. He comes to us and has the courage to say to us, you said this, you did that. How does that tie up with your profession to be a Christian? The Lord reproves us through the elders of the church. And that applies to me as an elder. Because I'm under the presbytery. And the presbytery is under the synod. And so as an elder, I can be reproved and corrected. And recently our presbytery had to do that with one of its members. And not long ago our synod had to do that with one of its ministers. The Lord reproves us through providence. The Lord may even reprove us through the unbeliever. Through the unbeliever. Is the Lord reproving any of us today? Is he saying to us, you have done things to me that ought not to be done? Are we responding to it? Are we resisting it? Or accepting it? If we regard iniquity in the heart, the Lord will not hear us. When we're reproved, we accept it, confess our sin, we're forgiven. But let's notice finally, and we're going to have to rush here because our time is gone. First of all, uh, finally, remedying sin or redressing sin. In other words, putting sin right, remedying it. And here's verses 14 to 18. And the key word, the key phrase is, then Abraham. Prayed to God. 
how is sin remedied? In Abraham's life, in Abimelech's life, in your life, in my life, in the lives of the unbelievers that we come into contact with through the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we cry out to him in prayer. And I believe it works here. We see the grace of God, sorry, at work here in this situation, both in Abraham unto restoration and in Abimelech unto salvation. Let us notice how sin is redressed or put right or remedied in Abraham's life by grace through Christ, first of all. What does Abraham have to do? Well, the Lord tells him in verse 7. Tells, sorry, tells Abimelech, verse 7. Now return the man's wife, that's Abimelech's responsibility, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you. And what will happen? You shall live. Well, the man is alive. There's much more than you shall continue to live physically. The spiritual life being promised to this man here. Abraham has to pray. Now, again, use your sanctified imagination here. You're Abraham standing there before the king. And you're asked by the king to pray for him in the sad and sinful circumstance that you yourself have been the cause of. So how would you pray? How would you, the friend of God, begin? Would you say, Lord God, forgive this man who has done this awful wickedness against me and my wife? No, that's not where you would begin. The grace of God is in your heart, as it is in Abraham's heart. Abraham will say, Lord God, I stand before you, a sinner. And I am guilty. And I confess my sin. And I ask for your forgiveness. I lied. I was the one that brought this man near to the pit of hell. And brought this badness on his household. And the judgment that could come upon his nation. And then once you've confessed your sin. Would you not then pray for this man? And say Lord God as you have forgiven me all my sin in the past. And even now as you've forgiven me this sin against you and against this man and against my wife, will you not forgive the sin of this man who has heard your word, who has seen your preventing grace? Will you not forgive him and save him? And so Abraham's sin is redressed through prayer that focuses on and confesses his own sin. And you see, that's where you and I must begin. When the Lord reproves us for our sin. Whether it's through his word. Whether it's through another Christian. Whether it's through his providence. Whether it's through the elders of the church. Whether it's through the presbytery of the synod of the church. What do we have to do? Lord, I'm guilty. Lord, forgive me. My sin. Are we doing that? Are we remedying sin, redressing sin in our lives by confessing our sin? 
But then look at the second part of it. Abraham prayed to God. Verse 17. And God healed Abimelech, his wife of the slave girls, that they could have children again. I have to say with shame I preached on this passage 15 years ago. And I missed this significant point that I believe there's a work of grace going on in the life of this man Abimelech out of this messy situation that Abraham has caused. Because the word heal here, it's not only used in scripture of healing from sickness, it's also used of healing from sin. Psalm 41 verse 4 I said, O Lord, have mercy on me, heal me for I have sinned against you. And also, by the way, the word for restore or return, verse 7, verse 14, it's the word repent. It's the word from which we get repent. And so the Lord already has said to this man, restore. Yes, and if you're going to restore her in a way in which she ought to, you're going to repent before me because of the sin that you've committed. Is it saying too much to say that Elimech has brought Abimelech is brought to faith through this incident? I don't believe so. Look at how this incident, and go back this afternoon and read it against chapter 12, and the whole conclusion is so different to the previous time when Abraham was 75 and went down to Egypt and was Pharaoh who was dealing with the thing. Uh, the whole situation. It's totally different. Because here now, look at how Abimelech treats Abraham. Afterwards, he treats him as a friend. He treats him as an offended brother. He allows Abraham to stay in the land. Verse 15. Remember, Pharaoh drove him out and, and uh, sent him on his way with his tail between his legs, as we would say. But Abimelech here says, stay in the land. He gives him sheep and cattle and male and female servants to compensate him. And then he compensates Sarah. For the offence that has been caused to her. A thousand shekels of silver. That's a staggering amount. Apparently a labourer. Earned a half piece of silver. A month. In wages. Now if I've calculated correctly. Abram gets the equivalent. Or Sarah's given the equivalent of 166 years of wages. Talk about compensation for an injustice done. There's compensation. And are these not the evidences of a man who is met with Abram's God? Both in the dream of the night and then as the man has stood before him and as the man has prayed for him. As Abram has prayed for him, sorry, Abimelech has realized this God is the God I am to fear and I am to serve. What do you do when the Lord reproves you for your sin? Do you confess it to the Lord? Do you confess it to those whom you have offended? Husband and wife? Children? Do you own up to your sin to your parents? Believers, do we confess our sin to our fellow believers? Do we seek to put things right? Do we seek to do acts of kindness? 
Do we seek to show that from this point on, the sin is forgiven and the sin is forgotten and we're reconciled to our brother, our sister, or here's someone who's become a believer? Do we pray that our sin against an unbeliever and confess to them may be overruled by God for their salvation? As we look back in our lives and remember with shame our sin against God, against others, let us pray that the Lord will graciously overrule our sin for our own sanctification and the salvation of those unbelievers that we have offended. You see, Paul goes on to say that where sin did abound, there did grace much more abound. And that's what we need to hold on to in our lives. Sin is abounded. But this morning, grace abounds. Christ, the Saviour of the world, the Son of God. And he speaks to us. And he reproves us. And he remedies our sin. When we pray, then he prayed. Do you need to pray? Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we are staggered at your grace and your love and your compassion and your mercy towards us. Born in sin and shapen by iniquity, saved by grace and yet having stumbled through our Christian lives living in fear of men instead of the fear of God and faltering and failing you and in danger of damaging others eternally by our sin O God have mercy upon us as you had upon Abraham and help us to give up the sin that we hold on to. Even as Abraham now, after 25 years, gives up this sin once and for all. We never hear of him passing Sarah off again as a sister. She's his wife. O oh Lord, we pray that you would cause grace to abound to us. And if today there is sin in our lives that needs to be remedied and redressed, help us to hear those words that we are to pray. Because when we pray, there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared and served. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. And keep you. The Lord make a space to shine upon you 
and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.